Our great God and Heavenly Father, we come again before you. And as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Jesus Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. And we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We pray, Lord, give us focus and even a solemn excitement as we hear from you now in the reading and preaching of your word. We ask all of this, Lord, be with us in Christ's name. Amen. First Corinthians 12. I will start at verse 21 <clears throat> to the end of the chapter. First Corinthians 12, verse 21. Speaking of spiritual gifts and the body of Christ. We read, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. So far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. The focus of the chapter of the sermon will be uh, verses 27 to 31. Uh, and what a blessing that it is this morning that we can um, celebrate together this Lord's Day. Both sacraments right, uh, uh, that were ordained by the Lord, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of course, here at Providence, we celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly. And weekly we delight and we remember and we praise God for sending a Savior into the world to complete all that redemptive history pointed towards. What, he pointed, what it pointed forward to. That he died in our place and took the punishment we deserved. And we look at what Paul is doing here in our text. We see that we are coming to the end of chapter 12. He's transitioning right into that great love chapter, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And we have seen that the Corinthians had lost sight of the fact that they were all, every one of them together, the body of Christ. They thought that they didn't all have the same gifts uh, and that that was the case, they didn't have the same callings, and they were all members, and all should pursue that which builds up the body and honor Jesus. They lost sight of that. And in all and through it all, we must remember that God is the gift giver. Right? He is the one who gives the gifts. And let's look at these God-given gifts uh, as the Holy Spirit wraps up, or he moves to discuss 
the need and value and importance of love overall, without which no gift, none of these gifts would matter. In fact, they would be detrimental to the body. In chapter 13, that which we'll take up next week, Paul takes a kind of, uh, in that chapter, he kind of takes a sidetrack, and then he returns in chapter 14 uh, with the discussion um, of gifts that he's began. And one of the greatest and most tragic uh, discoveries I remember making when I started to read the Bible as a young man for the first time uh, was really twofold. Um, but I remember how frustrated I was in reading the scripture, and uh, I was frustrated that Christianity and Christians in general were so awfully portrayed in the culture. I was shocked that what I saw in the culture was far different than what I was reading about in scripture. Uh, And every lame and insulting and negative stereotype of Christian people was on full display every chance that culture got to display it. And it bore, again, no resemblance to what I was reading in scripture. But nearly every Christian character... Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, nearly all of them in movies or on TV were negative in some way. The religious character is, more often than not, portrayed uh, in the negative light. It's either that or Christians and Christianity, they're mocked and laughed at in culture. Even Homer Simpson, you'll recall, even his neighbor was an over-the-top super stereotype. Right? You all remember Ned Flanders. Uh, So there was that that shocked me, but also the second discovery that went along with that was that there were actually people in the name of Christ who were doing and acting like the caricatures that that I saw uh, that the culture was portraying. So the entertainment industry portrays Christians as money-hungry charlatans scamming gullible followers. That's tragic. And there are people out there on TV and elsewhere who are charlatans, Scamming people for money. That's more tragic. And so as a young believer, I was really horrified that there was such a gross misrepresentation in the unbelieving world about who Christ was and who his followers were. And that there were people who called themselves believers who did things that were really fodder for the secular world. And what's the point in all that? It's just that it is most likely... If you're talking to someone who is thoroughly secular, right, worldly, and the topic of spiritual gifts comes up, you will likely not be talking or thinking about the same things. Right? That's, the, that's the subject of this chapter. And when you think about these things, when you, if this topic comes up, different things will be, um, uh, come to your mind. And most likely, uh, what they will drum up in their minds is what goes on uh, uh, late at night when they're uh, channel surfing and they come across those crazy religious stations. Right? That's what they think Christians are they're all about. And it's in those situations uh, we aren't going to defend something that they're against because we are not for that as well. But we can kind of understand regarding these things why their conclusion would be that they don't want anything to do with that, anything to do with spiritual gifts, with gifts of the spirit, if that's what they're like, right? Being drunk in the spirit, we see on TV, or being uh, convulsing in the spirit, or being slain in the spirit. They see that, and they don't want anything to do with it, and we can't blame them. But what does Paul tell the Corinthians here in, in chapter twelve? He says, "Earnestly desire the higher gifts." Earnestly desire the higher gifts. What does Paul mean by that? 
What place do these gifts play? How are they connected to the offices of the church, if they are at all? Well, this morning we'll look at these verses, 12 to 31, and see what they teach us regarding these things. Um, There may be no source of greater controversy, especially since the proliferation of Pentecostalism and the various varieties of Pentecostal, the Pentecostal movement that arose in the early 1900s. There may be no greater source of controversy than these chapters in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Some of the key doctrines of that movement, Pentecostalism, trace uh, uh, some of those key doctrines that they they teach and draw from are from these passages, from these chapters. As I mentioned before, one of the key correctives to erroneous teaching is to understand a couple of key things. One of those is to understand where we are. And the other thing to remember is what time is it? Right? That is where we are in redemptive history. On the redemptive history timeline, where are we? What epoch are we in? And then what time is it in the history of redemption? Are the topics being discussed part of the foundation-laying stage of the church? Or are they the superstructure which is built upon that foundation? Is this or that doctrine normative for the accomplishment of redemption era or the application of redemption? If we're not sure of these things, we can get into all kinds of trouble in our reading and teaching of Scripture. We have to have the right lenses, scriptural lenses. Regarding gifts, we have to remember what are the purposes of these gifts after all. We've seen as we have looked through uh, this, this topic so far that that has a lot to do with correcting these things. What are they for? And when we think about it, when we look about it, uh, look at this. One of the purposes of the gifts uh, were to buttress the preaching of the gospel. The healing and other miracles of, G- um, of Jesus and the apostles were con- to confirm the word as it went out. Or they're preaching the word of the gospel, and the miracles confirmed that. They were confirmatory. And the gifts were to buttress, they reinforced, they confirmed the word. Another purpose was to build up believers for the service in the church, for the common good of the church. Right, so they were to buttress, reinforce the word. They were to build up believers in the common good. And the third purpose was that the gifts was to bless each other as they are enabled to love one another. And the expression of those gifts as they reflected the love of Christ that had been shown to them. Paul had told them that in order to understand spiritual gifts, remember, they must first understand spiritual things. Right? Chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 now, concerning spiritual gifts, really, it's just, it's, it's just the word spiritual. Now, concerning the spiritual brothers, right, or spiritual things, you could say. They must first understand the spiritual before they talk about the gifts that he goes on to talk about. Jesus is Lord, recall. That is the starting point for, discuss, starting point for discussing the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. In the pagan culture, out of which the saints, out of, which the saints of Corinth had been freed from, in which they still lived, had a view of spiritual things. That's not so different from much of the West in its view of spiritual things today. They viewed the things of the spiritual realm, the spirit realm, to be things that we should aspire to master and control. And if a person did seem to master and control the invisible spiritual realities, they carried a lot of sway. They were important 
in culture. They were like a celebrity. Paul had been working to remove the corruption of that kind of thinking. God the Holy Spirit has determined to give gifts to all believers. To some he has given really visible spiritual gifts. And to others he has given a kind of ordinary or boring gifts. Right? But the thing that they had in common was what? That aside from them all being necessary, was that they were all for the common good of the body. They were for service, not for status. And when they were used for these purposes the common good, the caring for others, the result that they were, is that they were enabled to love one another. And that's the topic he's going to move into in chapter 13. Being loved by Christ and living for him, the love is worked out in their lives towards God and towards one another. And that worked its way into the world. So much so that you may uh, have heard this quoted, but that the testimony of history about Christians was we know them, by their love. We know them by their love. That's what they were identified as in centuries past. Brothers and sisters, would that we were known by our love to each other. What honor and glory that would bring to our Savior Jesus Christ. May we always be those who don't try to hurt and insult one another, but that we, we act in Christian love in Christ's loves towards our family members in the body of Christ. We don't all have the same gifts, but all of our gifts are for the good of the body. And using Paul's analogy of the body of Christ to the human body, what happens when those parts of the body work in cross purposes, right, in the human body? What happens when parts of uh, the parts or the systems in the body are not working for the same purpose, maybe hurting itself, That's what we call autoimmune uh, disorders, autoimmune disease. And it is so in the body of Christ. Damage can be done when members are not working for the common good and exercising their gifts, not for the body's service, but for their status. You damage the body and the unity of that body. There are no gurus or superstars in Christ's church. The only person that we laud and praise and follow and set as higher than anyone else, there's only one person, and that's Jesus. That's it. The body is one and many, right? Unity in diversity. And it's unity in diversity in equality, as we saw last week. Does the Lord give different callings and gifts to the members of that body? Of course he does. Are those serving in particular this or that position is better than others? Of course they're not. Of course they're not. Ministers and elders, when they take their vows, they need to understand they are servants, right? They are ministers, servants. They are to do their work ministerially, not magisterially, lording it over the body of Christ. Their work is not from themselves. It is derived from Scripture. It comes from the Word of God. And the other important thing to remember is that, in this regard, is that each gift was given precisely as the Lord wanted it to be given, to whom He wanted to have it. Right? Remember back in verse twenty, uh, sorry, verse eighteen. It says, "But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose." Right? He arranged as He chose. 
He gives, he arranges as he chooses. He is sovereign. He is loving. He is good. And then verse 28, and God has appointed in the church, right? God is the one. He is sovereign. He is good. He is tender. He provides. He is wiser than me. He is wiser than you. So when we fall into childish whining and complain and groan and grumble, we need to remember and recall that God is good. He is sovereign. Those things tend to correct our, uh, our, our weak and complaining perspective. He's the one that chooses in orders and designs and appoints. He is the one who has gifted you. He's the one who has called you. And when we frame our, frame our thinking realistically in that manner, we find it a little easier, even joyful, in the things that we've been called to do. We're all equally significant. We're the body of Christ, and he gives gifts as he sees fit. As we consider now our text, the close of this chapter, notice what Paul is doing in verse 27. He's changing from the analogy of the body to the relationship between the offices of the church and the gifts of the Spirit. He lists three offices and six gifts right, in these verses. Verse 21, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We've been reading, as we look at this 1 Corinthians letter, uh, and Paul tells us about the body of Christ, and he, he closes that metaphor in, verses 20, in verse 27. And there seems to be some emphasis in this verse, verse 27, uh, and that in the original, um, uh, the writer fronts, uh, Paul fronts the noun you, right? He brings that to the front of the sentence. And that's a way of emphasis or to draw attention. And then this, uh, along with the way that, that the word body has no article, right? It's article-less, there's no the uh, there. It leaves many exegetes to believe, and I agree with them, uh, with what Paul is doing, what he's trying to emphasize under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that all of this discussion about Jesus' spiritual body, the church, and spiritual gifts, all of that applies to every member of the Corinthian church. Right? Remember, he's taking universal principles, but he's writing to a local church, to a particular church, the church at Corinth. And so these things that he's saying apply to every member of that church who's reading and hearing or hearing these things. And that person with the really big head and ego, his great gifts, even with all of his conceit and egotism, he's not the whole body. He needs others. And no one can claim such insignificance as to be excluded from the body. There is unity and diversity Inequality. What does that do for this uh, motley crew of sinful, self-centered, and pharisaical legalists of the church? What does it do for us uh, as we consider these things, brothers and sisters? What part, uh, how or what does that put us into confrontation with? Or with whom does it put us in confrontation? Right? Because every one of us are both needful and needy. Right? We're needy and we're needful. That's one of the beauties of the local church, by the way. It keeps us from self-pity and keeps us from self-conceit. When we forsake the corporate gathering of the church, we rob others of what we could contribute, and we rob ourselves of what the contribution that others can make towards ourselves. Right? So there's a double uh, loss there. And it's inter interesting, too. Many people don't think about this, but the New Testament everywhere speaks of the local church 
Right? It is the local church that is the manifestation of the visible church, those who profess Christ's name um, here in the world. And the Holy Spirit constructs. And even, uh, even Paul's words, the Holy Spirit as he guides him, inspires him. And he constructs his words in a way that emphasizes the local church of which all were members. And Paul says, you are the body of Christ. You, you Corinthians, are the body of Christ. If you read the letter of Corinthians, you know that um, they had a lot of problems. They had a lot of problems. Though they are one body, they have many members. And he says, you all play a role and have an important part to play in that body. And we commit to each other when we join a church. Right? We aren't to date and date and date around and never get married. Right? That's not the model we see in Scripture. Because it isn't, it's in the local church that we are protected and that we are accountable and all the rest. We're not allowed to just hit the eject button when things get uncomfortable. Right? We are accountable. We don't just send divorce papers when we get bothered about something. We're accountable to one another. It's not a business. It's a family. It's a serious commitment to Christ and to his church. And so Paul starts by saying, you are the body of Christ like collectively. And you individually are members, parts of it. And with that transition, Paul switches to discussing the implications of how the spiritual gifts are related to the offices within the church. And he says in verse 28, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. There are several lists like this given in the Bible, and they're all a bit different. For example, our New Testament reading that we heard just a little while ago, which is very much the same thing as we're reading, the same thing as 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Peter gives uh, uh, something of a list. Um, it's not also a place where we see the Bible's teaching that every member has a divinely given service to fulfill in the body of Christ. All members, we have to remember, don't do everything. And no member does nothing, right? All members don't do everything, and no member does nothing. And the way Paul particularly cycles back again and again to this issue is very telling. And if you listen to what the scriptures actually tell us, we will fail to uh, understand and we will fall into either clericalism, right, where laymen play no, in the pew play no part at all in the church. They're just merely spectators. Or we could fall into the other error of every member ministry, which denies that uh, other half of what Paul is teaching that we're diverse and we have not all been given the same gifts and callings as everyone else. And so, so we have neither hierarchy of persons nor an off, officeless anarchy. The reality is that both are out of alignment with God's word. Right? Both poles are in error. And here we need to have ourselves directed and constrained by what, word, by what the word says and, and carefully stay in its light as we do in all things. Most think that the list of gifts and offices more likely is representative rather than comprehensive. Right? And what does that mean? That just means that what he's saying here is not exhaustive. It's, this is showing that some gifts relate to some offices. And notice how Paul makes the change from the 
uh, the three offices, apostle, prophets, and teachers, to the various gifts of the Spirit. A very helpful book in this regard uh, is by Ed, Edmund Clowney. He has a fantastic book. I think it's just called The Church um, by Ed Clowney. And he makes the point that this passage, especially verse 28, shows the connection between officers and the church. And think about the miracles in the New Testament, right? Think about the miracles. It's Jesus who performs these miracles in the Gospels. It's confirmatory of the word that he's preaching. In the book of Acts, it's the apostles that perform miracles. And both are, again, for the confirmation of the truth of the Gospel which they are preaching. So that ties the miracles to the office of apostle and to establishing the churches that the New Testament speaks of. As I mentioned a moment ago, the word for church, ecclesia, uh, in the New Testament is mo- most often used of the local congregation. The greetings in the New Testament, the, in, in the epistles, are clearest evidence of this. The term for church, in verse 28, though, it's used in a universal sense. That is the body of Christ. And that instructs us that what Paul will go on to say here is not merely reserved uh, for the flock in Corinth, right? He's very personal about that to Corinth, but it's not reserved only for them. It's also true of all apostolic churches, all those that teach the apostolic teaching, all those who hold the teachings handed down by the apostles. That is the apostolic succession that we hold to. It's their teaching. It's what Paul passed down to Timothy. The teaching, that which was handed down, passed down, that he instructed him to guard and to protect and to preach. That teaching comes from Jesus to the apostles and praise God to the world. That which is the same in those churches is that God has appointed specific believers to these offices and the Lord gave gifts to those people chosen for those offices. Uh, He gave the spiritual gifts required to equip them for service in the church. That's why people have been given certain gifts of the Spirit. They're called to the offices that God has designed to rule in Christ's name. We saw this recently, even in this church. Even here in Providence, men with certain gifts went through a process. We call that the external call, confirm the external call. And they went through the process of testing their internal call and were in some cases installed, in other cases ordained and installed. We see this happening in the life, the lives of churches all the time. And we see this very thing in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. Right? First Timothy and Titus, they talk about this. We see that there's three offices here in, uh, that correspond in 1 Corinthians to the offices that we see listed there in verse 28. Apostle, prophet, teacher. And they eventually become the offices of the church that we're familiar with. Again, it's not an exact one-to-one correlation, but the teaching elder, the ruling elder, and the deacon. There's, there's overlap there, but in the working out of all this, and there is certainly a reflection of this as well to every member. Right? Again, we want to stay away from both of those poles, the error. There's a reflection of this, not just uh, in, in the offices of the church reflecting Christ, but in the members as well. In this connection between spiritual gifts and church offices, officers, it's something that many people don't, they never consider, they never look at. I was surprised at the number of commentaries that uh, ignore that altogether. We don't have time to unpack that all now, 
Uh, perhaps next week we'll look at it more. But I commend Clowney's book to you. I don't agree with everything that he says, but if ever there was a, a brilliant intellect and a true pastor-scholar, it was him, Ed Clowney. And some of the misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts could be avoided if we only would remember that there are no spiritual superstars with special, a special link to God's mind and that there is to be order in the church, right? Everything done decently and in order, right? That's the Presbyterian verse, right? Everything done decently and in order. Another good book on the church is called Order in the Offices that talks about some of these things. Um, but order is aided through the establishment of those offices in the church and installing in those offices men who have been equipped, who have been uh, equipped by the Holy Spirit and called by the church. Without that external call that confirms the internal call within the man, problems certainly do arise. Right? We've all seen those uh, uh, variety shows on television where someone is convinced he is the best singer in the world. No one else thinks so. Right? There's no external confirmation of what they feel to be true. And we see this uh, uh, without the external call on the internal call. Problems come and some uh, such men might be convinced against all evidence and counsel that he is gifted with miracles and healings. Then they go and start a new ministry and they perform their gifts for the people. And all the while, with the exclusion of any church at all. What kind of damage have we seen from those on TV who do this very thing? There's no accountability for them by the church. And they end up like the people I mentioned earlier. And all the while, they, the name of Christ is what? It's dragged through the proverbial mud. The gifts are to be exercised in the church for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. Again, they're for service, not for status. They are not to be used to swell someone's head and their wallet. Well, like I said, we could touch on this more, this list more next week, but for now, remember, remember, brothers and sisters, God cherishes his people. He cherishes them. Even this dear, precious covenant daughter who came under the waters of baptism this morning a little while ago. Her father, our father, loves her so much that he arranged that she be born into a family. She be born into a covenant family to love her. It is a body that is variously gifted. Each one of us has a gift to use in service of the body for Christ's glory. Are you part of this family? Is he yours and you are his? If you are, remember God's love in constructing the body in his way, by his design. Even if we sometimes don't understand what he's doing or why he's done what he's done. Dear brothers and sisters, you who have yourselves come under the waters of baptism, Christ has named you with his own name. To you are the promises of God. They demand that you repent and you believe every day of your life as you look to Christ, your Savior. You see, it doesn't just demand that from little ones like Isabella. It demands that from all of us. Which is why when we pour out the water 
in baptism, we are required to warn the congregation, remember your own baptism by which you were vowed to God. And you pass through those waters and you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. And now God is calling you. And he's saying, I've blessed you with myself. Don't turn back, turn your back on those blessings. Continue to repent, continue to believe. You see, this is not some sort of strange, magical guarantee or right. This is God's promise and blessing for himself for us. And it requires of us faith in the God who gives that gift. And that requirement is not in a moment in time. It's all lifelong. We throw ourselves on the work of our Savior. We rest in his strength. We rely on his provision, which he gives. Because in those waters of baptism, that very judgment that you deserved, that I deserved, was already poured out in Christ. The one who bore those floodwaters and was drowned underneath them so that you and I might be set free. Set free, not to sin, but free from sin. That we might believe and we might live before the face of God as the new creations that we are. And if we have failed in those things, and when we fail to do so, the glory is that we look back and we cling to those promises that God made when he marked us and gave us the sign of his family. And that we might affirm, reaffirm through repentance and faith that Christ is ours and we are his. You see, baptism shows us that we are God's all life long. May it never become mundane to you. May you never, never have a yawning indifference towards this truth. If you are Christ, this is a glorious and wonderful thing. It is a promise of God for you. And you were called in, to repent and have faith and believe all of your life. Baptism says to us that God calls us to make not just one decision for Jesus, but every decision for Jesus. That we might, all of our lives, look to the one who bore our judgment. And in gratitude, give ourselves to him afresh, again and again, and anew. And if we have fallen, and as we have fallen, we are to repent of those things. And to look to who we are through baptism once again. The water defines you, right? If you are his, that water defines you. It tells you again who you are. Even when you don't feel like it. His promise and his gift is greater than our feelings or our failure. So may you, dear Christian, remember who you are this day and every day and look to Christ afresh for your salvation, for your very life. And may we pray and plead these promises for our children, even as we did earlier, that they all, all lifelong will believe in the same faithful Savior who has claimed them in these waters of baptism as we too remember, right? we ourselves look and we remember and rest upon Christ who is our life and our peace. Amen.